You are now authorized to love good. You're allowed to now. That's what changed when Jesus chose you. And and whenever you remember, whether you remember whether that choosing was, say, in your infancy, brought to the waters of baptism, whether you came to this understanding as an adult, whether it's both and you're baptized from infancy, but you had to learn a few things along the way, nonetheless, about your faith, you are authorized by God to love the good and to despise the evil, even though you also are authorized by God to admit that you've been on the wrong side of that ledger and that if it's up to you to put yourself on the right side of that ledger, you're not going to do it. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus has chosen to say to you, you're on the right side of the ledger now. And I, Jesus, I'm not letting go. I'm going to pull you further and further into the good. Starting with the wounds in my hands and the, uh, the spear in my side. But all the way down to now, every word, every word that this man who is God has said will never pass away. And you're allowed to love that. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verses uh, 28 through chapter 13, verse 37 is going to be no small feat for us today. There's a lot here. Uh, We're going to try to go through it verse by verse. And the goal is still to hit it right in our normal time frame. But you can start with me then uh, on page 848 of your pew Bible. We're at the bottom right column. Verse 28 is going to have above it uh, the phrase, the great commandment. Two things to get the running start here. One about the word great, and then the other one uh, about what's just happened before this that we want to keep in mind. So with the word great, though, just remember this, that in Mark, good is better than great. Because the first will be last and the last will be first. So there is no greatest. But there's lots of good. And there's even better than good that's fallen. There's good that's being forgiven and perfected by Christ. It's even better. But great, well, that's that's a little too uh, selfish for us humans to really deal with. Uh, and we'll see in the text that even the translation of the great commandment is, is it's just our preferred word for it. It doesn't say the word mega, which is the normal Greek word for great. Instead, it says the word protos, which is the Greek word for first. We'll come back to that. But let's get into the story here because we're also going to end with the destruction of the temple and the foreshadowing of the end of the world and the fact that you're the new temple now and in the life of the world to come, your temple is just going to get even cooler. But that all of this is likened to a fig tree. Whether we're talking about you and your faith, whether we're talking about ancient Israel as a people in Jerusalem, whether we're talking about American Christianity, whether we're talking about the cosmos, the parable of the fig tree summarizes it all. You are authorized to love doing good. And if you refuse to do what's so obviously what you're made to do, like you want to be a tree that doesn't bear fruit because you think that's cooler? Your root's already withering. And it's just a matter of time until what looks like faith, what looks like life, what looks like power, all just turns to dust and ash. And remember, he cursed this fig tree outside Jerusalem to basically say that's what he's found at the temple now. 
at the old covenant that he set up to save the world by being a special people are doing so by showing the world we can't do it. In fact, the guy who set it up, when he shows up, we're going to hate him more than anybody else. Jesus knows all about this. He knows that the new wine of the Lord's Supper, that is his flesh and blood given for you for the salvation of you and the world, is not going to fit in Old Covenant Judaism. He must institute, as Jeremiah said, a New Testament. But that means the Old Testament is going to come to something of a close. It doesn't pass away. It gets fulfilled in Christ. And so the fig tree that was Old Testament Israel as the people of God, it's going to wither away, harden even, while Christianity is going to come out of Jesus' resurrection as a completely, uh, well, freed, freed thing. So as he's going from this fig tree moment, again, there's a lot there in the fig tree, uh, what he immediately finds is that his authority is being questioned. The priests come out to meet him, and rather than, like Alexander the Great, stand there and say, we welcome you as our conqueror, uh, which they did to him, they come out and they say, who gave you the right to do anything you're doing? They say it this way, who gave you the authority? But we don't talk that way as Americans. We say, where'd you get the right? That's what we say. And Jesus doesn't seem to have any rights so far as they're concerned, coming into his very temple that he established in order to clean it, and make it a house of prayer again. Uh, but uh, since they don't like that he's doing this, and he won't tell them what right he has, they begin to try to trip him up. Remember, there's huge crowds around, right? And some of these crowds really like Jesus. Some aren't so sure. Some are definitely in the pocket of the leadership, and that leadership would rather arrest this guy and kill him as soon as possible. And the best way they can do that is that they get him in front of everyone who trusts in him to mess up. Because if this guy is the Messiah, he's not going to say something that's not true according to Moses. So they begin to test him. And we have questions about basically death and taxes. It's kind of interesting. You know, uh, the Sadducees want to ask about marriage in the afterlife. That's death. Uh, and then the Pharisees and Herodians want to ask about the Caesar on the coinage, right? And that's taxes, death and taxes. Look at that. Um, marriage and money. They want to trip him up about marriage and money. That's the issue. And as, as you've seen, if you've read this far, you know, he doesn't fall for any of it. And it's after that that he's basically silenced every opponent with just pure wisdom that our text starts in verse 28. There's another questioner who comes up, not from a party, not from a faction, but from a vocation. And he was a guy whose job was to copy the Bible. It's his job. He did it every day. Yeah? A scribe. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that Jesus, that's the he there, answered them well, asked him, that's Jesus, hey Jesus, which commandment is there the most important of all? Now remember that the, the Greek word there is, is protos. Like we get the word proton from that um, or prototype. We get that as well. It is just the word first but it doesn't mean first like the number one either. It's more like the letter A in the alphabet. It's, you might call this the alpha principle, right? That there's always something at the top. And in, in our understanding, that's God the Father, and then his Son, who is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds. But there's always something that's more than what's below. And that's the question. What of all the Old Testament tells me what all the Old Testament says 
How can we do that? Because it's definitely not the first commandment that Jesus gives, which is the first and greatest commandment. Well, the Ten Commandments are just a couple of verses before this, and he doesn't mention any of them. He jumps all the way to here. And and he says then uh, in verse 29, let's read Jesus' answer. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, I want you to put your finger right there. And find your way all the way back to uh, page 500, or excuse me, 151. So it'll be Deuteronomy. <laughs> find it without the page number. I dare you, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Because Jesus' answer, what's the most prominent thing to know that the whole Old Testament says? His answer is a direct quote from Moses that any Hebrew male who knew his salt would have answered in this day. It's not that surprising of a question and answer because the answer has a special name. They call it the great Shema. The great Shema. Shema means to hear in Hebrew. And the great Shema is hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. Now we're going we're to look at it here. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. There it is. Hear, O Israel. And the English is putting that word here at the front to emphasize. That's how it is in, in the Hebrew too. Is Shema Israel. Right? Hear us. Hear Israel as God speaks. What's God say? His proper name, which you can put in Yahweh or, or Jehovah or El Shaddai or whatever you want. But I really like to put in Jesus myself. Because that is the truth, that Jesus is Lord. So hear, O Israel, Jesus Christ, our God, Jesus Christ is one. Now, setting aside that that's Jesus for a moment, this means that the first and greatest commandment is that God exists. Hear, God exists. Now, that, that's kind of stunning. Like, don't we need a little more? And we're going to get some more. But there's also something that maybe... Maybe it's important for us to really recognize, distinguishes us from other people. So if somebody says, I believe in God, but what they mean by that is that they are spiritual and not religious, and that whatever your understanding of God is, that's good for you, and my understanding of God is good for me, and so my God, I worship him under a tree. Your God, you worship him by a river. That guy's God, he looks at the statue of a cow. But you know, uh, we're all going to the same place anyway. I believe in God. See, there's this way that we've dropped the S from the back of the word God in America. Our presidents don't say Jesus Christ bless America. They say, may the gods bless America. They just lie when they say it. And they try to get us to believe they're talking about our God. But it's evident by everything that they do policy-wise, and this goes back 100 years, that they're not protecting Christianity. They really aren't. Uh, If anything, they believe in what we would have to call false, false gods. And this first and greatest command of God is to acknowledge that there are no false gods. You can't. You can't. You can try. It won't work. There's only one true God. And then, rest of the verse... You shall love this Lord Jesus, your God, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And the word heart there is lev. 
The heart in Hebrew is the center of your humanity. You could call it your emotions, I guess. It's a little more than just your emotions, but it, it isn't really your body. We're not really talking about the beating thing in your chest. They're acknowledging that the beating thing in your chest is pretty much what keeps you, your heart, your emotions, your life alive. But the word life doesn't quite work because the next word, spirit there, right? Soul, as translated, is the word nephesh, which can mean spirit and soul and also just means life. So you have the heart and then you have the spirit. And together, this is what makes up your life. And then there's one more thing he lists that makes up your life, your strength. So if I had to tell you, you know, what these three things are, you know, your, your heart is how you feel, your spirit is what you're going to do, and your strength is the willpower to do it. Now, what I want to know, and if you came to the first service, you can't cheat. You don't get an answer. What I want to know is if you notice what Jesus said different. We read them both. It's almost a direct quote. But there's just this weird thing that happens. Anybody catch it? Uh, uh, so, well, good. it's a riddle. Moses says, the greatest commandment is to know God exists, love him with heart, soul, and strength. Jesus says, the greatest commandment is to know that God exists, love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And now here in the middle of this big crowd where they're trying to trip him up and get him to misquote Moses, the scribe says, you're right. That's exactly right. That's what he says next. Let's go back. Let's go back. Uh, chapter 12, verse 32, page 849. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. Oh, it's even better than that. And, and you know, I'm sure some Greek scholar may, may critique my understanding, but I, I think they really got it wrong here. There's only one word before the word teacher, and it's the word good. So he just shouts out, good teacher. He knows right away. You're right. You're right to find translation. But can you hear how everyone who wants to question Jesus, he just called him the one who is good. You are right. You have truly said that he, God, is one and there is no other besides him. There's only one God. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength is to love one's neighbor as oneself. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Neighbor and self, second greatest commandment. Let's come back to that. Do you notice how he says you're right? And then he says what Jesus said, only he doesn't say it the same again. Although if you've got a King James, you might not see it as fast. Because in King James, it's going to say heart, soul, strength, and then some other word. It's not mind because it's a different Greek word. And if you don't have the King James, like the ESV, you notice the word soul is missing. And there's a debate about which of the ancient texts that we have. We have two copies. Which one's right? Now, did the scribe include soul or not? We'll let other people debate that. It's the same idea. It's coming out of Moses without any question. Moses said soul. Jesus said soul. The scribe didn't mean to say not soul. Let's leave that behind. But what he did do is he took Jesus' word mind and he changed it into the word, at least in English, understanding. And what's really cool is that's exactly what having understanding does, is it sees that the word mind means more than just itself. And you draw connections between these things. So now let me tell you what each of these words mean specifically. 
The word that Jesus used for mind uh, is out of Greek philosophy, uh, and, and it means two things. Uh, the first word is through, like, you know, there's a tunnel. I'm going to go through the tunnel. That's the dia on the front. Dia just means through or toward. So through, but there's no tunnel here. There's only a noia, which very literally just means brain. Or he- you could say head, but they don't mean like the outside. They mean the brain. So Jesus says, love God with all your heart, soul, and whatever goes through your head. Yeah. And the, the scribe comes along and he says, indeed, love God with the soon in me. Also two words. Uh, soon means with. And it means, it's kind of like out of the word stand, but moving, right? So to move with someone. And that word is colloquial now for them. So they didn't didn't hear it as like sending. They heard it as putting together. Like you get a puzzle and you put it together. That's the word he used. To love God with everything you put together. That is indeed what God wants out of our lives. Uh, Now, Jesus does tell us, But the second commandment that is first is like it, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. I don't want to diminish that this morning, but we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. I just want to make it clear that your neighbor is not someone on the internet, unless they live next door to you. In which case, why are you chatting on the internet and not talking? It's kind of weird, right? But your neighbor means the person who lives next door to you. And while technology has made it possible for us to know the business of a bunch of other people who aren't our neighbors, so much so that we can spend most of the week worrying about it, it doesn't mean it's good for you. And it doesn't mean that's what you're left here on earth to do. What you're left here on earth to do is to love those that are truly your neighbors, because if you can't, if you can't try to be good to the person who lives next to you, even when they're not good, then how can you love God who you've never seen when he's going to send all sorts of suffering your way? That's kind of the the way of it, right? It isn't that you must love your neighbor or God won't love you. It's more that if you're a Christian, kind of the one thing you should do after training your mind in devotion by reading the Bible regularly in Jesus' name is look at who's actually living next to you and ask yourself, could I be better toward them? It doesn't mean you have to like, you know, fix their house every time anything goes wrong and be their slave. It's just be a good neighbor. And how many of you know your neighbors? I I kind of know some of mine. I'll wave. But I tend to like have my fence. They have their fence. And here we stand, right? Well, that's division. And Christianity wants to break down dividing walls of hostility. So loving your neighbor also will apply to very much right here in the pew. Because of marvelous technology, we're able to come from quite a bit farther than they used to come for a parish, for a congregation. Nonetheless, the congregation is your Christian neighbors in your town. That is what they are. And so you should feel that it's the command of God. You're authorized to love the people here, even when they don't deserve it. That's the power you've been given. That's kind of an amazing thing there. Love your neighbor as yourself. The scribe says, of course, this is also right. This is more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And and there's maybe even a pun there, because if they're standing three feet away, yeah, he's not far at all. You know, the king's right there. And he, he knows it a little bit. He knows the king is a good teacher. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. So he's going to go on and talk some more, but nobody can really stop him from controlling the crowd at this point. Before we go there, I want to give you one more thing, though. I want to I dig into this word command again. 
and this word commandment. Because I think as Lutherans, we've, we've just taken a good thing and done a bad thing with it. We've taken the proper distinction between law and gospel, and we've used it to make it so that we can't love the law anymore. Because the law is mean. It makes us feel bad. The second use of the law is that it will accuse you. And make no mistake, the law is going to accuse you. If you go home and decide, today I'm going to love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and at the end of the day, you measure yourself in righteousness based upon how you did, it's going to be a bad report card. But the thing is, that's not what Jesus is getting at. He's not like, well, I'm really concerned that you have a perfect day of report card every time you do everything. No, 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 no. He didn't say love God so you'd feel bad about not loving him. He said love God because God loves you. You're free now. And yes, your love's going to be weak and paltry and new and infantile and immature, but it's still going to be there because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Because that's the promise, right? And this is where if you can understand the Ten Commandments less as the ten things you're supposed to do that you don't do, and think of it more as the ten things you are always given permission by God to do with all your heart. You are authorized to love your neighbor as yourself. You are authorized to get married and have a family. You are authorized to tell the truth wherever you go. You are authorized to know that God is God and is behind you. I would even go so far as to say you are anointed by the Holy Spirit to believe, teach, and confess these words. And that anointing isn't hidden. Every one of you is baptized. You've been washed with the water of salvation. That's an authorization too. Yeah. So if you can hear the word command, less as God saying, you over there, look at me and do it. It's more like God turning you around and saying, run. I'm behind you. So to love God with your mind, heart, and soul, I don't want to hear anyone around here say, I can't do that. Like, you're right. In confession, fine. But what I want you to do instead is say, Jesus, help me do that. And I want you to try as if, as if you can. You can begin to learn. You can begin to see. And that's not your own justification. I wouldn't even call that your sanctification. I just call that, like, salvation. Faith. And you get to see. So the great commandment he gives is that God is one and he's really for you. And that loving him is going to fill you up more, more than you would think. Huh? So then, they won't ask any more questions. Here we go. Verse 35, Jesus continues teaching. He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? A riddle. Christ is the riddle master. Why is the Messiah the son or the heir of David, because he says, didn't you read Psalm 110? David says, according to the Holy Spirit, the Lord, and if you look back, that's the capitalized word, God. God said to my Lord, that would be the Christ, the son of David. God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Well, Jesus says, verse 37, David calls this Messiah Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. A riddle that doesn't mean much to us today because, well, birthright and inheritances aren't quite the same. And my guess is none of you really think of your father as your Lord. Right? Like we just don't do that. Um, but, but that is the ancient way of, of seeing this. And so that 
even the Messiah underneath his earthly father would always submit to his earthly father. We see that with Jesus and Joseph, don't we now? And so um, here then, David is singing this song about how his son is going to be more prime than he is, uh, more, more empowered than he is, the great one who is to come. And Jesus wants to ask the question, have you thought this through, you who are here worshiping, waiting for the Messiah? That this guy who's coming, his father won't be his Lord. He'll be the only one in all history whose father is not rightly, naturally his, his king. Why is that? How would that be? And the answer is so easy. You know it. Oh, it's because he's God. <laughs> it's because he's the incarnate son of God. That's how. But see, in the temple at this moment, nobody, nobody recognizes that. Nobody sees that. Remember the only ones in Mark who know that he's the son of God and say it? Demons. But he's pushing it here, and you're starting to say, but wait a minute. Yeah? He's God, is he not? And so, again, he, he gives this great riddle to basically point out who he is and pushes us back to Psalm 110 which we sang a few moments ago. If you want to look at it later, you can. But the piece I want you to pull out is that word Melchizedek. That this quote about who he is as the son of David means that his priesthood is a greater priesthood than the one that's going to crucify him. It is, it is the priesthood of the righteous king. That's what Melchizedek means. And if we can just take a line and run to the end, I want you to believe today that you are anointed by your baptism into the priesthood of the righteous king. And that that command that he's given to you, well, that's lightning in a bottle right there. It really is. We'll hopefully come back a little more. But meanwhile, those false teachers, yeah? We talked about that with Second Peter earlier. In his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats at the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. There's the word greater, right? First will be last. Uh, The more one lifts oneself up and sees oneself as higher than others, uh, the farther you have tumble down to the level playing field of reality. And here he's also then warning for all time, don't just trust your pastor because. Really. Don't just trust your pastor because. And certainly don't just trust him because he's nice. I hope I'm nice to you. I try. I'm not always the most, you know, hospitable, congenial guy. I got my own heart. Yeah. Uh, But I, I don't want you to listen to me because you like me. Uh, I don't want you to listen to me because I'm entertaining. I want you to listen because the word of God is alive in you. And you know when I speak it, it's true and you, and you need it. Uh, uh, but beware that, that not all pastors are going to do that. It's just a fact. And you might say, yes, but we're the Missouri Synod. And I got to say, I've been around the block. I've got the same issues. Now, the issue is going to deal with death and taxes again here. You know, money and this world. How much can we hang on? And he set it all up by claiming that the scribes, you know what they're really doing? They're stealing from widows. That's what they're doing. They're scuttling their way into widows' houses and taking their earthly goods while those women suffer uh, without aid. And remember, in the ancient world, there was no, like, uh, retirement plan for the widow. <laughs> uh, her son was the retirement plan, okay? Uh, and so uh, to devour a widow's home, she has no son. Um, this is to, to put someone on the street. And then we're going to see what happens next. 
what happens next? Uh, he sat down opposite the treasury, uh, probably in the court of the Gentiles, but possibly in the court of the women. Uh, he sits down opposite the treasury to watch the people putting money into the offering box. There was more than one offering box in Herod's temple. There were different ones designated for different things, although a lot of them ultimately were for paying for the sacrifices that had to happen every day. At the temple every day, morning, evening, uh, midday, there's like cows getting killed and burned, right? And someone's got to pay for all of this. And the way that that would happen was through these offerings, these offering boxes. But that's not the only offering boxes that were there. There was also an offering box for the poor. There was a box there that was supposed to basically go to people who had no money to live on. That's the one I kind of think she went to. I could be wrong. Again, it might have been just the free will offerings. But the story, it all kind of hangs together a little more. If this woman, who has not bewared the Pharisees and the scribes, has been taught that God really loves you if you'll just give all your heart. And so all she's got to give is her last two pennies. And she goes and she puts her last two pennies into the box that's supposed to be giving her food. And she doesn't even know. Do they even know that this woman is going to go starve tonight? No one even sees it. That's the whole point. There's just a market going on around him. And she slips in and he says again, uh, poor widow came in, verse 42, put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And that's actually giving it too much credit. This is like two bits here. Um, and he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And no more commentary than that, but uh, let me suggest to you, in spite of our heritage in the LCMS with the widow's might movement and things, um, that the widow's might is not a good example in the text. It's not here to say, you go and do likewise. If you've only got two bucks left, give it to St. Paul Lutheran Church. No. No, that's false teaching is what that is. Take care of your body, take care of your family, take care of your duties. Offer an offering when God gives it to you. Because frankly, we have cash here that I have available to use. I shouldn't say cash. We have an account here that is called the pastor's discretionary account. And I am supposed to use it whenever somebody is in need. And the last thing I'd ever want is that very person who's in need, not uh, basically being in need because they gave it to us. Like, we don't need to cycle it through a couple of checks, right? Uh, uh, there, is, there is a greed involved when we don't see that not everyone's supposed to give the same amount. And the weakest and least of these, well, we're supposed to give to them. And he's condemning that. That the heart of all of these sacrifices going on, they've missed the heart of God, which is to care for the widow and the orphan. Right? To see their need and, and well, try to meet it, really. And so you can expect that, you know, since he's saying, you know, all of this is wrong, everything is wrong here. As he's walking out, chapter 13, verse 1, uh, one of the disciples says to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, right? Uh, he just said the old covenant's not working. Everybody doesn't believe in God anymore. You're a bunch of greedy, uh, devil-worshiping slaves. And they're like, look at the building. It's kind of pretty, isn't it? And don't get me wrong, Herod's temple was a wonder of the ancient world. Marble and gold and all sorts of stuff that you just, you couldn't imagine. Huge! And how they did this without cranes were still 
Not sure. They didn't have computers. They didn't even have pencils. How'd they do it? I don't know. They did it. And so he also, this disciple and all of them, they're going to believe that this temple is here to be the place where the Messiah will be crowned king of the world. Now they're right, uh, but they don't believe it's going to be a crown of thorns. And they do believe this is like the fortress from which we conquer the planet. And in one sense, they're like, hey, Jesus, look where your throne's going to be. And Jesus is like, no, no, it won't. This building's done now. And he's, he's going to be pretty forthright about it. Uh, do you see these great buildings? Verse 2. There will not be left one stone here upon another that will not be thrown down. And you can take that and apply it to these bricks right here too, by the way. Everything. Whole planet. Mount Rushmore. I'd like Mount Rushmore. I'd like it to stay. You know, I've heard chatter about it being racist and things, but okay. Uh, I like it. It's an amazing tribute to modern man's capacity. But when Jesus comes back, it's going to melt. So, so he's right, right away. Okay. But then there, there's more because he's going after the temple specifically here. So verse three, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, there's like the temple mountain and then a valley called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And it goes up and the Mount of Olives on the other side. So you go across the road, up the other hill, and you can see the city just sitting there, right? It's kind of like you ever been to San Francisco before you cross the Golden Gate Bridge. You can sit there and you can just look at it. It's a glorious city, right? was. Um, they're looking at the temple. Uh, and Peter, James, and John, Andrew, they ask him privately, verse 4, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, what are these things? Not one stone of the temple being left upon another. They believe that will be the end of the world too. And so Peter's question is, will you tell us how to know when the end of the world is coming? But he thinks it means the destruction of the temple. And what we, from our vantage, need to see is that he doesn't. The destruction of the temple is going to happen in 70 AD and the world's going to go on. Uh, his words are not going to pass away, but the generation he's talking to, they're going to pass away, but not before it all happens. That's, that's the chief thing to get here. And then all the other talk about the end of the world is how this reflects. This is like a shadow of the end of the world. Uh, we'll, we'll go through it here now. Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. It's like how he's going to end. Watch. Watch. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Uh, I, I believe one of the most famous ones came in like 55 AD, and he claimed to be the Messiah, and he got an army together, and they got, even got to like the Mount of Olives. Yeah? So it, it happened in that generation still, 55 AD. People claiming to be Christ returned. Yeah? When you... so. That should not make you think the world's ending. Let's say that some guy from, I don't know, the Philippines has a church of 40,000 people and he says, I'm Jesus, and they all believe it. Does that mean the world's almost over? No. It does mean that a wicked man is spreading himself like a green tree and his root will wither and rot before too long. It means that. And that's the seasons as they come and go, just like war. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. There's going to be lots of earth before the end of the world. Lots of us ruining earth. 
for nation, hear that not as like nation state, like USA, hear that as people, people group. People group will rise against people group and kingdom. Now this is ruler, leader uh, against kingdom. Uh, today you might say CEO versus NGO versus uh, the actual government. You know, they're all rising against each other, trying to battle for who can control this, that, and the other thing. Meanwhile, there will be earthquakes in various places. Now we, we did just have a storm across most of the nation. No biggie. I mean, it's a biggie. You got to deal with it, but it's not a sign. Not a sign. Uh, these are but the beginnings of birth pains. Uh, welcome to the fallen planet. He just described it. Okay. But he says, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness to them. What's nice about this not being about you first is you can know that happened to the apostles. They were taken before uh, kings. They were beaten by synagogues. They were rejected by their own people. So he's very much talking about them. But you can certainly believe that not everyone's going to like what you have to say as a Christian. That's there, right? And that when you are before people who are unbelievers, uh, that you're going to speak before kings, basically. Your job is to be the voice of God in that moment. He sent you. He made you. Yeah? And in this, then, the gospel must first be proclaimed to think, all peoples, not all countries. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, these are encouraging words, do not be anxious beforehand at what you are to say, but say what is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, again, I, I don't think you need to plan what you're going to say uh, to Governor Pritzker when he calls you in to his office for you to declare why you're a Christian and won't bow the knee to Caesar. Like, like This isn't where you're going to be. Um, but what you can take from this is to know that wherever you're going to be, God the Holy Spirit's with you and it's going to be all right. That is what he said. God the Holy Spirit's going to be with you wherever you go and it's going to be all right. If you need to open your mouth, open your mouth like a Christian. And if you need to keep your mouth silent, then hold your tongue like a Christian. For the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. So you can control what you say, but you also can just let what you know to be true come out. And that's what he says. In that moment, do it. Say what you believe you got to say. Don't fear it. Don't be ashamed of it. Even though, verse 12, brother will deliver brother over to death. We've seen that in communism in droves, right? Where people will sell out their family for whatever they believe. And the father, his child, well, it's amazing. Children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. I don't know if you get, you watch this guy, and I'm going to lose his name. He's a football player, and he thinks everything's against him, and everyone hates him because of his skin color. You see that? And, like, and he's actually come out. He, he's mad at his parents because they're a different skin color, and they raised him. And that was racist. And they, they didn't like his hair once or something. And, and like, I don't, I don't, whatever. There's a lot of, like, pained families out there with issues. That's fine. Showing it on international TV, that's interesting. Um, but the issue for me is, like, look, you're – you're rising up against your own parents. How strange. Even if they're bad. Even if they're bad. How strange. And, and you Christians who won't do this uh, will be hated by all for my name's sake. Just like if you, I remember the guy's name now, or what I just said. I'm sure somebody out there is going to watch it and be very angry about what I just said. Hated. Why? Well, because I believe in truth. That's why. Because Jesus is my king. That's why. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, which is to say, know that you're walking through this. 
There's another side. It's a dark tunnel. There's a light. It's a fire, but your feet are not going to get burned. You're clothed in holy water. You're anointed with the Holy Ghost. The word of God dwells richly inside of you. You're going to endure to the end. So again, want to. That's more of the point. Like, think about it. Love God not only with your heart, but with your mind. As you think about the end of the world. I tried to tell a story at the first service. I don't know how good it went, and we're, we're going to run out of time. But it's really a thing. Do I live today for 30 years from now, or do I live today for today and, and tomorrow, maybe? And I think that it's so easy in America to start thinking about 30 years from now. Just think about how we handle money. It's always, I got a million bucks. It's not, what do I do with it? It's, how do I keep it? It's upside down. We want to be as a people who we get good things. We say, what do I do with it? Not, how do I keep it? Now, uh, moving forward here, we're going to skip over uh, the bit about the abomination of desolation. Uh, We'll have to take that up some other time. Uh, But it's going to be the sign that Jerusalem is finally going to be destroyed, that Daniel prophesied. And he tells them, when you see this sign, get out of the city. He really says that to them. And then the cool thing about history, Josephus tells us that when Rome came and attacked in 70 AD, guess who left the city before? All the Christians did. Why? Well, because there'd been a rebellion that led to the slaughter of some priests in the temple courts. That is, innocent blood was shed in the temple courts. That'd be an abomination of desolation. And and they left. They left the city because they trusted Jesus' words here. Uh, Now, the danger for us would be to take this and try to apply it to, like, pin the tail on the Antichrist out on Fox News. Like, don't do that. Don't do that. You don't know who the Antichrist is. You don't know when the city is going to collapse. It's true. Let's get to the fig tree. Verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, bringing forward all the stuff about the fig tree with the rotten root from earlier, but then also seeing that he's just saying, when it's winter and you see green on the leaves, like you can tell it's going to be spring, right? All right, so if you want to know what it's going to look like right before the city gets destroyed by a giant army, like it's not going to be that tough. Like you're going to see the giant army coming. You're going to hear about it. People are going to be talking about it. And at that point, Christians, if you want a lesson from this, it's you don't have to stay and get killed. Christians are allowed to flee. Whenever you want, you can leave. Right? And, and that's an important thing because people will teach you that it's like not faithful to be afraid and things like that. Paul escaped Damascus in a basket through a hole in the wall. Why? Well, that he might preach some more. So learn the lesson from the fig tree. Stop worrying about what's going to happen next because you'll know. You'll know. But in the meantime, you know, uh, verse 30, uh, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. Christ's words going to stay with you the whole way. And then concerning that day, last part. Verse 32, that day, now he's talking about the end of the world, finally and for reals. And what's he say about it? Uh, No one knows. Not even the angels, nor the son, only the father knows when the last day is going to be. So we're back to where he started. Be on guard. Keep awake. You don't know when the time will come. And he he tells a story about the man who goes on a journey, leaves his servants in charge, doesn't want to find them sleeping. Now at the end, verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all So this isn't just a word for them, it's a word for us too. But remember, when the master comes and he finds the servant sleeping, well, that's exactly what has just happened. 
as all the priests and Pharisees and Sadducees, they don't recognize the master came home. He went on a journey now. Here he is to claim what is his own. And he's telling all these stories to make it clear to us that this is the end of the old covenant. It's done now. Huh? And a new covenant in Jesus Christ's blood is built on its foundation so that the end of the old covenant is not his abrogation. That's a big word. It's not getting rid of it. It's fulfilling it. The, the high priest of Melchizedek stepped into the high priesthood of Aaron, completed all the appropriate tasks, not only in the earthly version, but in the heavenly version. And now all things are made complete, yes, and awesome in Jesus Christ. And so what he says, he says to you, so stay awake with that. Don't fall asleep in the madness of the world around you. This present age is going to tell you that it's all about right now. Stay awake. It's not. Tomorrow may never get here. This is the beauty of that. I got a million bucks. It just fell into my lap. My heart says, how do I keep it? Put it in the account, gain some interest, spend the interest only. That way I always have a million bucks. Look at me, aren't I smart? And then the next day the world's over. And I could have like bought a Ferrari. I don't know. I could have like built a building for poor people. I don't know. It's a million bucks. But I was so busy trying to keep it, I couldn't even see that I wasn't doing any good with it. So I don't mean don't have a bank account. I mean you're authorized to do good. And part of that authorization is, authorization is recognizing that this world is, is over. It's piddling out. It's on the way down. So don't build here as if it's going to last forever. Build here, fine. But build here with a recognition of what it is. And never let what you're trying to build that's so good get in the way of the very simple things. Know who God is with your heart, which means listen to his word and trust it when he says to you that he is your God and that loving your neighbor is pretty important if you want to have peace. In the name of Jesus, amen.